Well, there's something about um, misbehaving in church and being on the pastoral track because uh, like Pastor Tracy, I was a terror in church too. And um, as far as I know to this date, I was the only one who was banned from church services for a period of time in the church growing up. So um, rest assured parents and uh, students, if this, is, uh, if this is something that you're totally checking out during, uh, don't worry, you too will be on the pastoral track. God has a sense of humor like that. Well, today we're continuing our series in the Sermon on the Mount, and this morning we're going to look at the final blesseds in this opening section. In the Beatitudes, Jesus paints a picture about what life is like in the kingdom of heaven on this messy earth. According to Jesus, everything about our lives is either being conformed to the kingdom of this world or being transformed by the kingdom of heaven. The Beatitudes are a pattern for living. They are the blueprints for the kingdom of heaven. They reflect God's wisdom lived out in this shaky, conflict-filled, power-struggling world that we live in. But as we've seen, God's plans look nothing like what actually gets built and praised and lasts in this world. Nothing like the display of power, deception, and violence that rises to the top. The Beatitudes disturb the comfortable, and they comfort the disturbed. By way of review, what we've seen so far is that in God's kingdom, the movers and shakers are not the headliners, but those who take their place backstage. They are poor in spirit, and they are meek. God is the one who is center stage in the lives of believers. The spotlight of their lives doesn't sign on themselves, but on others. To the hurts and hang-ups in this world, to those who are in pain, they show love. They are merciful people. Their food and their drink that gives them energy in their life is to see God's will done on earth as it is in heaven. They hunger and thirst for righteousness. But their passion for righteousness is in no way about patting themselves on the back or being self-righteous. Rather, they pray and labor with equal strength for God's will to be done in their own hearts, to be pure of heart, because more than anything, the people of the Beatitudes want to see the face of God. That's a description of who is a part of God's kingdom. Now you'll notice what Jesus says in these Beatitudes we've seen isn't the stuff of our daydreams. We don't zone out during the day wishing that we were poor in spirit or mourning or spend our time scheming to be meek. And that's because there's a tension between the kingdom God is bringing and the kingdom that we create in our own minds, between the fallen kingdom of this world and God's eternal kingdom. You see, in our sinful natures, we advance a kingdom with plans and details that are so different from the blueprints Jesus provides for the kingdom. You know the conflict between these two kingdoms. If you work or study in a non-Christian setting and you're a follower of Jesus, you experience the clash of values on a regular basis. And it isn't always easy to determine what is the best Christ-honoring action in my work setting. You even find that the trends and methods in your field of study or in your job 
crash into your Christian faith quite often. What people say or value around you can, sh- uh, can really rattle your faith. So what would it look like to live out Jesus' beatitudes in those settings, in your office, at home, or in school? Or if you work for a church or a Christian organization, or you attend a Christian school, you realize that the reputation for being Christian doesn't always keep you safe from the opposing forces of God's kingdom in this world. There can be a culture of living contrary to Jesus in the name of Jesus. So what would it look like for Jesus' way of living that he talks about in the Beatitudes to show up at all places at church or in your Christian setting? Well, Jesus tells us here in this passage, for those who are part of God's kingdom, they will conduct their lives as peacemakers. And the response to Jesus' followers living in this way is persecution. Now, because we live in a culture that historically has been influenced by Christianity, we're tempted to believe that what Jesus says about peacemaking isn't really all that otherworldly. Jesus lived in a day where dominance and power and glory were the highest ideals, but now we've been influenced by Christianity. Who doesn't want peace these days in our society? Who, who would persecute peacemakers in our world? But listen to what, John, uh, what Jesus says in John 14, 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. The reason that the world will always oppose Jesus' peacemaking is because it is not of this world. Even if we live in a society that has been shaped by Christianity or we do life in a place that is predominantly Christian, the peace Jesus brings will always struggle to take hold in this world because of our sinful nature, because there are dark spiritual forces that disrupt peace, because whatever means that we try to promote peace We'll always have our messy, muddy handprints all over it. So with that in mind, we're going to look at this passage today. And we're going to look at it under three headings. First, the peacemaking king. Second, God, Christ's uh, peacemaking people. And third, the persecuting world. So let's f- look first at the peacemaking king. We've said that the Beatitudes are the blueprints for God's kingdom. And when you give someone blueprints, they have to imagine what exactly is this going to look like. But when Jesus hands to the disciples the blueprints for God's kingdom, they only have to look up to see Jesus because he is the perfect representation of all the Beatitudes. The one who says, blessed are the peacemakers, is himself the peacemaking king in the kingdom. The opening chapter of Matthew tells us this, that when Jesus was born, God's people were very much in exile. They woke up in a world filled with conflict. They were away from their home, banished from the land that God promised them. Not only that, God's presence was very far from them. His temple where he dwelt was destroyed. And although some families did return back to the land of Israel, like Mary and Joseph's family, God's people were strangers in their own home. The Romans occupied their land. 
And while there was great stability and peace for the Roman Empire, God's people had no peace. They were reaping the bitter consequences of the rejection of God. They were without peace, and they were without a place, but they were never without a promise. As we heard from Isaiah, God would be sending a prince into this world who would be known as the Prince of Peace, and of the increase of his government and of his peace, we will know no end. And this prince will save his people from their sins. When the world least expected it, the Prince of Peace was born. When you read the news or work with the conflicts in your life, the conditions can seem hopeless for peace. There seems to be no place for it. But that is exactly the time in history that God's peace entered into the world through the person of Jesus. Not only was Jesus born for peace, his ministry was marked by peacemaking. In Ephesians 2.17, this is how Paul summarizes the ministry of Jesus. Jesus came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who are near. Jesus' mission to the world brings peace, peace with God and peace with one another. It is both a personal peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ, but it also has a public expression. It is not one or the other, it is both. Because Jesus' message brings good news to the poor and it binds up the brokenhearted. He brings liberty to those who are in captive and he brings gladness instead of mourning. His peace is both personal and public. It has to do with how we relate to God and how we relate to others. You know, we know we need Jesus' ministry of peacemaking when we get angry with our family members or when we get frustrated with our classmates or teachers. We know we need Jesus' peace when we look at our world that is filled with war and gun violence. We know we need Jesus' peace when we get aggressive, we get caught up in fear-baiting speech of a political pundit, we spew out harsh criticism, about people who hold different views than we do. We know we need Jesus' peace. We know we need Jesus' peace when we are appeasing others and not speaking up because we are afraid. In all these ways, we know we need God's peace to reign in our lives. And the New Testament tells us that the cross unleashes the peacemaking power of God's kingdom and also provides the example of peace we are to follow. Colossians 1.20 says this, Through Jesus, God reconciled to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Jesus is the peacemaking king who makes peace by the cross. By Christ's love on the cross, we are converted from being God's enemies to his children. God uses the full weight of his power to make peace with us, not by a sword, but by self-sacrifice. The worst crimes against humanity 
committed, that, that humanity committed against itself, the worst crimes that humanity committed against God, Jesus bears the punishment himself for. At the cost of his own life, he makes peace for us. You know, when relationships are fractured or they are not what they're supposed to be, there is a cycle of retaliation that spirals. Someone hits you, you feel like you have to hit them back harder. If someone hates you, makes your life difficult, and tries to snuff you out, we're told, give them a taste of, your own med- of their own medicine. But where does it end? Where does the cycle of violence end? The power of the cross. The cross is what breaks our violent patterns and aggression that we find ourselves in. You see, at the cross, hatred is neutralized by sacrificial love. It makes things new. You know, when I'm in a foul mood, and this doesn't happen very often, but when I am in a foul mood, and my wife says to me genuinely, I love you, you know, there is an opportunity in that moment for something different to ensue. When there is love in the face of hatred, violence, it breaks the unhealthy cycle and real mending can occur in our world. By his cross, Christ unleashes the peacemaking power of God. But notice this also. The cross is the example of peace we are to follow. You know, when our societies are polarized, there's a left, there's a right. There's a right, there's a wrong. There's a good side, there's an evil side. If you're not on the one, you're on, you're on the other side. You see that this dynamic of polarization takes place center stage in our society. It even takes place in our lives. We feel like we have to stay on our side of the street and we have to cut ourselves off from others. But the cross of Jesus shows us a different way. Think about this. Jesus is the only one who truly embodies the righteousness of God. He literally is on the right side of God. Yet at the cross, he stands in the middle. He is the mediator for sinners. That is to say, he is standing on behalf of the benefit for those who are on the wrong side. Breaks down our polarization. Many people will say they know what Christians believe, but they do not know that we love them. But if we tell them the truth without standing in the middle and sharing Christ's love then we aren't sharing the whole truth with them, are we? This is, where we have, this is where we need to learn from the cross of Christ. The cross of Jesus disrupts the polarization our society creates. The cross shows us that being on the right side means standing in the middle. We never abandon the truth, and at the same time, we are always ready to make for reconciliation in our world. Well, if that's Jesus, our peacemaking king, and if that's his way, then we are to be a peacemaking people. That's the second thing we see 
in these Beatitudes. Jesus says that those who are peacemakers will be called the sons of God. When Jesus starts his ministry and he goes to the Jordan River, he is baptized by John and the heavens open and the Father declares before the world, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. What Jesus is saying here is that those who are peacemakers resemble his character and share the privileges that he has with the Father with us. He gives us sonship. What is his by nature is ours by grace. And at no cost to us and at every cost to him, God makes peace with his enemies and we share in God's eternal life that can never be taken away from us. This gives us insight on how we are to be peacemakers in our society. Well, back in 2012, a well-known Christian blogger wrote a critical uh, response to Anne Foschkamp's best-selling book, A Thousand Gifts. In it, this Christian blogger questioned her view of God and warned Christians about the potential dangers of her book. Well, instead of writing a defensive response to him, Anne invited the blogger to her home, to her family farm in Ontario, Canada. She was hoping to get to know him better and not simply the anonymous person who wrote the blog post. And such, a, such an invitation from her compelled him to apologize to what he said about her in his blog post. You see, it may have been a family farm on the plains of Canada, but according to Jesus, that farm became an outpost of God's kingdom of peace. Daryl Davis is a successful musician, songwriter, and band leader, but in recent years, recent years he's become well known for his activism See, you see, since 1983, Daryl has been taking the risks of meeting with members of the Ku Klux Klan. Through his friendship with some over the years and through his activism, 200 men left the Ku Klux Klan, including one person of the highest ranking office, who Daryl now considers a friend. Daryl is quite explicit. Why else would an African-American man in our society do this? The reason he does this is because of his Christian faith. He says this, you cannot hate the hate out of a person. You cannot beat the hate out of a person. All you can do is love it out of a person. He started this work in a small town bar in Maryland but according to Jesus, that place was an inbreaking of God's kingdom of peace on this world. Back in 2004, Pope John Paul II of the Catholic Church went to the Turkey, and there he asked for the forgiveness, for forgiveness from the patriarch of the Orthodox Church for the sack of Constantinople by the Catholic Church that killed many Christians 800 years earlier. 
And although they met at an ancient site, on that day, the kingdom of heaven was bringing renewal to that very place. You see, whether you are a writer, a musician, or even a pope, whether the issue is unfair criticism, racism, or an offense that happened a thousand years ago nearly, peacemaking in Jesus' kingdom does not have an expiration date. The kingdom of heaven is coming, and it is one of peace. It is always the time to be making peace. Now, we are not there yet. And not every person we have conflict with will sit down and talk with us. Some relationships in this life will remain irreparable. But where it is possible to make peace, we are commanded, no, we are free to pursue it because we are already our sons of God. We are reconciled to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. We have nothing to lose by peacemaking. Sometimes, the way that this has to start is picking up the phone and saying you're sorry. Sometimes it means you have to ask God to help you have a forgiving heart. Very often it means you have to talk about different difficult subjects and issues with those you love. Every time, peacemaking always involves loving, listening to others. The Apostle Paul applies this teaching of Jesus well when he says this in Romans 12, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. That is how we are to be a peacemaking people. Now lastly, Jesus teaches us that one reaction that the world will have to our Christian peacemaking is they will persecute us. He says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Peacemaking will result in persecution in this world for Jesus' followers. That's the last thing we see here. You see, Jesus says in Matthew 10, 16, behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Already in the life of Jesus and his ministry, his disciples knew what it meant to be persecuted. And from the very beginning of his ministry up until now, Jesus' followers do face persecution. When I traveled to Egypt some years ago, it was difficult to see just how difficult daily life was for many Christians. All over the world, including in places like Egypt, Christians face persecution on multiple levels. They're prohibited from meeting publicly for worship, they're not able to hold public office. They're not able to buy property. They can be imprisoned for their faith. If they share their faith, they can even be executed. This is what happens throughout the world and what we see in the history of the church. Now in our setting, when we hear these words from Jesus, we can think that in some ways, this is going to be very far from us, but we don't know. We don't know what the future will hold, and what Jesus teaches always is timely 
wherever his people hear his word. And so what Jesus says speaks to us very well where we are. Because no matter where you live, and no matter how old you are, or no matter what you do, we will face persecution on some level for Jesus. Now, let's be clear here. The disciples are being persecuted for righteousness sake. They're being persecuted for Jesus. They're not being persecuted because they're behaving badly. That does nothing for the cause of Christ. So we always have to check our motives, our actions, and our behaviors to see, are we really being mistreated because we're followers of Jesus, or are we, misaligned, are we not living out the way Jesus calls us to? Paul says this in 2 Timothy 3, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. Because you live for Christ, you should expect trouble. We live against the stream of culture all the time. Now you may see this in your life in a number of ways. You may be condemned because you don't embrace the causes that our society embraces. You may be restricted in the advancement of your field because you are focused on promoting the Christian faith and that doesn't fit the surrounding work culture. You may have fewer friends at school. You may be turned down. You may have to turn down social events. You may lose relationships with family members because you want to live for Jesus. We don't know what suffering we'll be called to endure. But in the face of it all, we are never to cease to be peacemakers. You remember that when the soldiers arrested Jesus, Peter takes out his sword and chops off the ear of one of the soldiers. And Jesus rebukes him for it. And he heals the soldier who is about to arrest him. You see, because in our culture, Christianity has some level of standing, some position of power, we must be reminded that we are never to wield power in a way that is contrary to Christ. We never have that right. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German theologian, writes this, Jesus' disciples keep the peace by choosing to endure suffering themselves rather than inflict it on others. They maintain fellowship where others would cut it off. The peacemakers will carry the cross with their Lord, for it was on the cross that peace was made. Now, I know that when we hear Bonhoeffer's words, we can think that this is really just social passivity, right? We're just yielding ourselves to abuse. But notice what Jesus says here. He compares this way of living to the prophets. The prophets were not socially passive. They spoke on behalf of God and called all people to repentance, whether they were peasants or kings. And they did not yield to abuse. No, what they did was that when they could no longer avoid mistreatment, they saw it as the appointed time in which God was calling them home. They weren't passive. And they weren't yielding to abuse. They were simply following the call of God on their lives. Now, oftentimes when we suffer, we ask this question, what's wrong? Why did I deserve this? 
You know, if you reach out to someone in love that has rebuffed you, they might snap at you. They might hurt you. And that doesn't feel good. But know this, any time that you are impacted or you suffer harm when you make the decision to be reconciling, know that you are identifying with Christ and his kingdom. And while pursuing peace may mean you will experience several losses in this life, Jesus tells us to rejoice and be glad because the kingdom of heaven is what awaits us. How is God calling you to be a peacemaker in your life? Are you willing to do the difficult work of standing in the middle, not on the side, but in the thick of things, telling the truth and showing its power by giving up your life in love, by giving up your time, by giving up your money, by giving up what you have for the sake of the other who may want nothing to do with you? You may find that even as you live this way, Christians might oppose you. Christians might condemn you. But we, regardless of how people treat us, are always called to live the way of Christ, to stand in the middle. Now there's a saying, if you stand in the middle, what happens? You get run over. Now, if you stand in the middle, you stand with Christ. And if you stand with Christ, there is always resurrection. Resurrection is always the last word for us when we stand with Christ. Now, in order to live this way, we need a fresh experience of God's grace. And thankfully, morning worship and communion is an opportunity to be strengthened by the presence of God so that we can face whatever opposition may come our way. And we also at this table get a foretaste of the kingdom that Christ is bringing. May God give us the grace to live as his peacemakers in this persecuting world. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you show us the way of peace by the cross. Would you now, by your grace, make us more and more like you, being able to live peaceably with all and being committed to peacemaking in all the areas of life that we inhabit. To the glory and honor of your name we pray. Amen.